Well, it's been a good day of practice. I, uh, everybody was muted, so I can't quite say that I could really feel the stillness, but it sure looked like there was a lot of good practice going on. And it's such a blessing that we can be together online, even though that feels different than being in the room. I think some of these people couldn't have been here otherwise. So this is um, really sweet. So remember the, the quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who said, um, the faculties are active powers that coordinate and channel our natural energies. And it may be that from this day of practice, you have seen that we have a lot of natural energies in the mind and body that um, come and go and so forth. And so remember that these faculties are intended to be what are called Indriya, named after the god Indra. So they're sort of guiding forces for the mind um, that can be invoked or that will be used in order to help um, coordinate this mind for walking path in whatever way that's going to be for us at this moment. So it begins with, with faith. You have to have some sense or trust or confidence. Some sense, I'm invoking it now in the sense that we could find another way to live. You know, this is a walking the path is a way of changing our way of living in the world. And we have to have at least some sense that there would be another way besides our usual way of, you know, anxiety or depression or anger or whatever our main themes are in the mind. We have to have some sense, oh, maybe it would be possible to, to change this in some way. Um, we have to have a sense that maybe it's available with some effort and with some knowledge that we can develop the skill of living well in the world through following the Dharma. So it's good to connect with our aspiration, whatever that looks like, our deeper reason for practicing. I'm, um, I tend to be a little bit careful about telling people what that should be because it really should come from within. and. Um, one way that that can be done is actually through a meditative or contemplative process that I like to recommend people do now and then. Um, now and then means probably not more often than once a year, but um, it is good. And it's just to sit and ask yourself, why do I meditate? Or why do I walk this path? A very simple question. And, you know, after you've settled down a bit, and some answer will arise, and um, that's good. And we, so we can say thank you, we listen to that, acknowledge it. But we don't need to accept that first answer as just the only one. Uh, we can then pause for a moment and ask again, why do I practice? And maybe some other answer will arise. Um, and, and we thank that one too, because they're all true. They're all correct answers. And then if we keep going, we'll end up, we'll sort of exhaust all the surface level ones or the ones that we think we ought to have. If some of them are ones that we think we should have and not what we actually have, don't worry about it. Just thank that one too. Keep going. And, you know, we, we eventually get down to some of the more um, personal and heartfelt or individual ones that are there for us. And it's good to touch in with that now and then in a felt way. That's why I ask people to do it in meditation. Um, 
So that gives us kind of an experiential sense, direction, if you will. And then we can also find an experiential encouragement to continue on our path because even if we've only practiced now and then, if we've only practiced for today, um, we've seen something, <laughs> something has happened. And so there can be an experiential sense of, oh, okay, something does, is going on here. And so we again have some confidence that if we stick with it, more will happen. So we can have some, some, some joy about seeing actual change in ourselves. There's one lovely sutta that talks about how the practice of recollection or bringing up faith through recollection can influence the mind. I'll just read it. Uh, it has a bunch of different recollections, but I'll choose the one for the Dharma. When a noble disciple recollects the Dharma, on that occasion, their mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion, their mind is simply straight based on the Dharma. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dharma, gains joy connected with the Dharma. And then it goes on to say, as if that weren't good enough, it goes on to say, this is called a noble disciple who dwells in balance amidst an unbalanced population, who dwells unafflicted amidst an afflicted population, one who has entered the stream of the Dharma. So I don't think the implication is that we would just be saving ourselves and let everybody else be afflicted and unbalanced. But the, the idea is that we would find this as an inner refuge um, so that we know that we're not, you know, if we, even if we're around people who are suffering more, we're not inevitably going to have to suffer. And that can actually encourage us to be willing to be with people who are suffering or afflicted. And maybe our calmness would then uh, be some ballast for them. But we find this faith in the Dharma, um, and we are able to dwell in balance, and to dwell unafflicted. It's quite beautiful. So there's this image of finding balance, first of all, and an image of the stream of the Dharma um, that we can kind of enter and flow with. I think that's also a very lovely image. We'll see it again, actually, with some of the other faculties, ideas of stream. So then once we're clear on practicing on our inspiration, uh, we have to get our mind aligned for the task. And that's kind of what energy or effort is about. It has a lot of different facets, but we need to cultivate, at a broad level, we need to cultivate ethics of getting our mind into a wholesome state and not letting it wander off into wanting and not wanting and irritation and its usual habits, which, you know, which are just natural, but we we might need to exert a little effort to point the mind in a different direction. So that's essentially what the four right efforts are about, which I won't go into in detail, but they're about replacing the unwholesome tendencies of the, of the mind with wholesome ones, which are much better to live with. Um, and we do that in our body, in our speech, in our mind, different, all the different aspects of our being. So we're slowly replacing um, at a sort of a substrate level, we're replacing a value system that um, just to favor wholesome states, which are what will really make us happy, as opposed to, say, pleasant states, which is what we might go for. You know, we tend to think, oh, if it's pleasant, it's good. That's what I want. I want more pleasant and less unpleasant, which is not you know, a terrible thing to aim for. We certainly don't want to aim for the unpleasant. But 
when we start to aim for what's wholesome, it gets a lot better. It's a lot closer, more aligned with how the universe works because things that are wholesome are what are what really make us happy, actually. Uh, not only things that are pleasant, which tend to be a little bit more flimsy in their satisfaction. So it's a powerful turning point in practice to have that understanding of what the energy can be used for in our, in our mind and body. Often our energy is a little bit misdirected. Um, it's going toward getting things or achieving things or being someone, something like that. Things that won't make us as happy as these more these deeper aims like, like the wholesome. So the energy too has kind of a, a connection to flowing and rivers. It's a good image for all these faculties. So these are the four right exertions. Which four? I guess I will name them. There's the case where a practitioner generates desire and arouses persistence um, for the sake of the non-arising of unskillful qualities that have not yet arisen. So if that's tangled language, it just means there's something that hasn't happened yet. We will try to prevent you know, ourselves from getting irritated or angry. And for the sake of abandoning the qualities that have arisen, that are not helpful, for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that we don't have yet, and for the maintenance and continuance of skillful qualities that we do have. It's sort of a nice little, just logical thing of, you know, we would want more of the skillful and less of the unskillful. And then it goes on to say, just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues these four right efforts, they flow to unbinding, slope to unbinding, and incline to unbinding. And here, unbinding means, means freedom. So, setting in for that. So, again, there's this sense of flowing along, of being channeled um, through this ongoing act of moving towards skillful qualities. So, we again see that we have this channeling effect of the faculties. I've noticed that my mind is often slightly off balance in some direction. And I don't think that we need to idealize and say, okay, so that means what I need to do is get the mind in balance and keep it there. Because that's a little bit fixed. I think it's more good enough that if we just direct the mind always toward moving toward balance, that'll be good enough. Because then if, we, if we're moving toward, and then if we happen to overshoot, well, if we we continue to move toward, we would just naturally turn around and start going back. And there's a lot of that in practice, is to kind of a little too far this way, a little too far that way. But if we're always going toward balance, it's, it's keeping us in a good state. Sometimes there are big imbalances that need to be corrected, like we realize we're just way off in some area. And so that can require you know, sort of a big move or a sudden or a lot of effort. But um, often it's just making small corrections definitely an ongoing process. We can understand why energy is also related to the qualities of patience and persistence in the teachings. So then, um, once we see that the wholesome is what works, then we realize that our life is actually flowing by all the time. Every moment, uh, there's something going on, wholesome or unwholesome, um, or you know, pointing toward freedom. 
And we're gonna to need to pay attention to what works and what doesn't. So there's a natural arising of, of mindfulness, of wanting to pay attention to our life in some wholesome way. We're gonna to have to figure it out in this mind and body, not some abstract system. We're gonna to have to do it uh, right here with the stuff of this experience. So we do need help from teachers and from Dharma readings and Dharma talks we listen to and other things, Dharma friends also. We're not definitely not having to do this all on our own, but we are doing it in this life and somehow it's in the end, it's, it is our experience um, that is the, the final authority there. So this is mindfulness. Um, and as an example of how mindfulness brings balance, I wanted to share a sutta called the Sedapa Sutta, um, which talks about some two acrobats. So it's literally about balancing. And it's um, an acrobat and his apprentice, and they're uh, doing something on a, a trip on a bamboo pole. And it says uh, this. Once in the past, this is the Buddha telling a story, once in the past, an acrobat set up his bamboo pole and addressed his apprentice thus. Come, dear apprentice, climb the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. Having replied, yes, teacher, the apprentice climbed up the bamboo pole and stood on the teacher's shoulders. The acrobat then said to the apprentice, you protect me, dear apprentice, and I'll protect you. Thus guarded by one another, protected by one another, we'll display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. When this was said, the apprentice replied, that's not the way to do it, teacher. You protect yourself, teacher, and I'll protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. And so then the Buddha comments on this and says, that is the method there. It's just as the apprentice said to the teacher, I will protect myself. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So that's a nice image of, um, I think the idea with this pole is that the person stands with a bamboo pole on their shoulder and the other person climbs the pole. And so they're kind of mutually in balance. And so one thinks, well, if I watch out for the person down there and they watch out for me, that will work. And you can sort of imagine on a, something like a bamboo pole, you'd really be better be watching out for yourself and the person on the ground watches out for themselves. And still there's some mutuality there because you're connected by this pole. Um, but by keeping the attention inward, we actually help the whole system to stay in balance. And so again, it's not a sense that we're only doing this by ourselves. People on bamboo, you know, the acrobats were mutually interconnected, but it's a lovely image for the way we are with all the people in our life, right? We, um, you know, we are somewhat pretty much responsible for ourselves and the better that we can stay balanced, the more balance we can offer to them and they need to balance themselves. They can't expect that we're looking out for their balance. We can't see everything in them. So this sense that the establishments of mindfulness, which are you know, the areas where we pay attention to our experience, those are real protections, both for ourselves and naturally for others. Um, if we protect 
ourselves, we will naturally be protecting them. So mindfulness is kind of the ultimate balancer. It's even considered the force that balances the faculties themselves, <laughs> it being a faculty as well as balancing you know, the other qualities of the mind. So um, this is this horse image, right, of the lead horse. So mindfulness is not merely paying attention, actually. There's this, uh, remember the title of Utejaniya's book is Awareness Alone is Not Enough, which is a um, great teacher. He's a, a great title. He's a teacher of the mind. Not in a way like we're just sort of checking it off, like, well, angry, irritated, depressed, you know, no check, check, check. It's, um, we do sometimes do that with a very neutral view of the mind. But what he adds in, you know, the missing piece, why awareness alone is not enough for him, is that uh, he wants to add in wisdom. So we need to be aware of the mind with the sense that it's not personal, or aware of the mind with the sense that it's definitely going to be changing, or you know, other aspects of wisdom that get brought in. So in particular, um, this is now the fourth foundation of mindfulness, um, talking about the four establishments of mindfulness that were mentioned in the Acrobat Sutta. The, one of those is the area of looking at uh, the, you know, the Dharma qualities of experience. And so, for example, we notice how the hindrances arise and pass. We don't just notice necessarily that there is a hindrance, although that's the place to start. Okay, yes, my mind has wanting in it right now. But we're asked also to notice how it is that wanting can arise in a mind that it didn't have wanting before. How does that come about? And once it's there, how does it go away? You know, um, what factors help for it to calm down? So it's not that we need to... Um, make a huge scientific study of it and copy down absolutely everything. But it's more like an, an experiential understanding. We flow along, we see that there's a lot of wanting, we can check. Hmm, what else is here? You know, what else is going on? Maybe there's some view that something ought to have happened and it hasn't happened yet. And so there's wanting for it. Oh, okay. So we can notice that there's the view of wanting that, or the view that something should have happened is contributing to wanting it to happen, to thinking it ought to have happened by now. So that's just a simple example. Um, so we, and then we also check, you know, if some other hindrance is there, how might it fall away if it's already there? Uh, what would contribute to it? Um, sometimes just seeing it is good enough and dissolves. Other times we have to do something a little bit more proactive. And, you know, we're just, learning about how the mind balances. And then similarly, in the case of you know, the really wholesome mind states, like the factors of awakening or something, we would notice if they're there or not. Oh, do I have mindfulness in mind? Do I have investigation in mind, joy, concentration, the other factors of awakening? And if it isn't there, what qualities help it to arise? And if it is there, uh, what qualities help nourish it and sustain it so that it can become stronger over time. Um, this is really an interesting practice and it's, it's ongoing. You don't need to feel like you've got to do that um, starting tomorrow, starting immediately. 
need to get a huge catalog going. It's, it's really not meant to be so analytical, but more experiential to start to tune into the flows of the mind. Again, we're back to flowing in a sense of guiding that toward more wholesome, less unwholesome. So this starts giving us a sense of some degree of mastery over the mind. And that doesn't mean control. It's more a mastery of seeing how the patterns work. We're going to learn a lot about the patterns of our mind on this path, these little tricks and all the particular peculiarities of how our particular mind works. Um, it's fascinating and it's good to have a bit of humor about it sometimes. But um, we get a sense of, of kind of knowing, knowing the tricks of the mind. So that, that's what I'm calling mastery. And interestingly, it goes with a letting go of control. So I think um, people early in their practice struggle to do everything consciously and deliberately, like the way when we first tried to ride a bike, if you ride a bike, um, at first you have to think about it. You have to pedal and you have to hand, have the handles and you, know, you, you get maybe an adult pushes you along for a while and then lets go and you're like, whoa, you know, there's a lot of things to do here. Or if, when we first learned to drive, if you drive, um, there's a lot to think about when you first get in the car. It's like, oh my gosh, what are all these things? But then a master has kind of put a lot of that into subconscious. So you know how to balance a bike. You know how to drive a car after a while if you practiced with it, right? And so there again, there's that learning the skill. And in the same way as we learn about the mind, we'll naturally get more skilled in its ways. We have to keep learning because the mind is very tricky and we'll keep uh, keep producing more effects for us. But it's interesting that when we get more mastery of the mind, we become more available for intuition and other things to arise if we're not having to consciously control so much. So then when mindfulness gets more continuous, as it will when we start observing the mind, um, we get into the realm of samadhi then. Um, continuous mindfulness helps the mind to become uh, gathered and serene, sustained on experience. We touched into that today in the meditations, but some kind of samadhi can happen also in just in everyday life. It doesn't have a single object anymore. It has changing objects, but with that continuity of mindfulness, there comes to be that possibility. So to get concentrated, the main thing is to create the conditions. As I said earlier, it's a more of a result there's not a lot else to do but try to create the conditions. And you can, you can will a little bit of samadhi, uh, and it's nice to try that sometimes. But it tends to be a little bit brittle if we always rely on the will to concentrate the mind. Um, it doesn't have as good of an effect on the whole system. The conditions for concentration are named all over the teachings. There are lots of them. They include tranquility of the body, uh, joy, happiness, mindfulness, some degree of gathering, like one-pointedness. So all these factors um, help establish concentration. Also certain kinds of directed thought for the, um, for the earlier stages, so you know, using our mind well. So then this is very worth cultivating, you know, to whatever degree 
some degree of gatheredness and serenity can come into our life from time to time, it's helpful. It really um, provides a lot of balance and understanding. So the, the fruit of concentration is that we learn, we start to learn what is better than um, our usual reactive way of being. I see a note that uh, Robert needs to check out, so that's fine. Thank you for being here. Be well. So the, the happiness of concentration is far better than sense pleasure. And, you know, we just, even a little bit of concentration, something you might have had today, for example, um, we start to get a sense, oh, you know, that's, compare that to chocolate or whatever your favorite sense pleasure is. It's, um, it has a feeling of being more refined, doesn't it? And so we naturally become less entangled with sense pleasures when we know this more refined pleasure, even if we just get that a little bit on the cushion, you know, every day or once a week or once a month or however often we can get it, uh, it has a little bit of a disentangling effect. It's not that we're going to stop enjoying the sense pleasures or that we're going to be afraid of them or when they come, they're just neutral to us. Um, we don't have to worry that that will happen, but we, we won't have that um, kind of craving and gripping that we tend to get around the sense pleasures when we think those are the best thing we can have. So it's a real fruit of concentration to have that um, disentanglement, shall we say, from the everyday world. And then if we, you know, if we keep doing this on the cushion, we can start to appreciate that word I used earlier was brilliance. I like that, the brilliance of the concentrated mind, which is very gathered, very serene, very present, and we can have a kind of a deeper respect for the capabilities of our mind. I think it's important to have a sense of what this tool is um, capable of. And it's not that we need to then you know, rush out and try to get all the power that we can through our mind, but um, sometimes we, we may give ourselves a little bit short shrift about how, because our mind is wandering around or it's depressed or it's, you know, always the same patterns that we keep seeing. But um, even getting a little bit of concentration on the cushion, we start to appreciate just how good the mind can be. It's a really good state. And so then we're a little bit lighter about the times when, okay, you know, we didn't, you know, it's doing its thing again, but it's okay. I know, I know there's something really good in there. So concentration is a very refined state. And so we start to appreciate the, refined more than the gross. Even concentration, which is largely a result, as I said, is can be used as a way of balancing the mind. Uh, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist teachings say that when, a, when the Buddha had back pain later in his life, he certainly wasn't exempt from pain, even like, like all of us, he would enter certain concentration states in order to have some relief for his body of course, he had the ability to do that. Um, but the cultivation of concentration can help with um, balancing the mind from certain perturbations that it gets into. Can really, if we have an ability to gather and calm the mind, that can be used um, as a as a balancer. There is also uh, quite a number of stories in the teachings about it, uh, monks that used concentration when they were seriously ill. I said earlier that concentration is difficult when we're ill, which is true if we're not well trained in it. But um, 
I, I have read even, you know, modern teachers like ones that are around now saying and who have had very difficult physical things. I'm thinking of one teacher who had cancer recently saying that um, he was surprised that uh, all the concentration he developed on retreats, which he certainly didn't experience in his busy everyday life, but he'd been on some retreats, um, came, came back to him when he was in a very painful state of his illness. That there was some of it available, certain qualities of it. You know, you're not going to be sitting with the brilliance and bliss of the fourth jhana unless maybe the Buddha, but he found that there was somehow that that was there. So I, I'd like to name, I, I pointed out as a refuge if we develop it, it may be there for you at surprising times. We don't know. So then um, we move into wisdom. You know, what is it that the mind can see when it becomes bright and concentrated like this? The concentrated mind is steady and clear so it's like a little bit like getting a really clear image through a telescope. Maybe we were holding the telescope before and looking and we couldn't see it too well because our hands are shaking. And then we get a tripod and we put the telescope on it and it's like, oh, there, I can see. So concentration is like that. The mind finally settles in. And then um, the point is to see things with concentration. It's the point concentration is not the aim of practice. Um, so we see, that comes the realm of wisdom, we see change, we see unreliability of changing things, we see what's called corelessness or not-self, the fact that it doesn't, things don't have essences, they just keep flowing one thing to the next. And we tend also to get some insight into how we are creating stress and struggle around this changing process. It's just changing, and, and we're thrashing around and trying to fix this and trying to get that. And it's you know it's not that we're going to just sort of give up. If you just give up, you'll drown in the river. But if you thrash around, you'll also drown in the river. So um, we need to learn the skill of swimming, floating, being with the way the river actually is flowing, and that has a lot to do with wisdom. So, um, in fact. I like this stream entering image because the um, uh, the phrase for when we start to get some wisdom is stream entry. <laughs> we start to enter into the stream of the Dharma, like it said at the beginning, related to the first example I gave related to faith, right? That person enters the stream of the Dharma. And so then, lest this sound a little abstract, then we start to have a sense of how to live well. You know, and all along the way, we've been getting little clues about how to live lightly, not creating further entanglement, while still being fully present for all the joys and sorrows of our life. Um, there is no escape except through relating better with uh, what's here. There are maybe there are temporary escapes, perhaps from uh, there are certainly escapes from ordinary experience through different kinds of experience, but the, the real escape is to change our relationship and to understand what it means, really what it means not to struggle, uh, to find, touch something in the heart that is without any suffering. Have that be our reference point. Free people still have physical pain and they still have complicated human relationships, but 
there's no stress or struggle associated with these. And long before we're completely free, there is less stress and struggle associated with all of these things. From the first day, we can have that. So I think life doesn't get all neatly sorted out, but there can be total faith in going forward with the uncertainty. We develop the confidence, well, this is just changing and I'm gonna deal with it as it arises. I'm not gonna get sucked into it and entangled with it. And then I don't have to know how it all works out. I just have the confidence to take each step and uh, meet it well, wisdom, with concentration, with mindfulness, with energy. This is now getting back, ironically, to faith. This is from Sharon Salzberg from her book, Faith. Anything outside of us can crumble into dust. No symbol, no construction, no condition, no relationship, no life is immune to change. What can any of us place our faith in that endures? According to Buddhist teachings, to discover that is to know the deepest level of faith. So we're back to faith, but it really is about the confidence of having some sense of how life works. Um, we can, and to get there, we keep using these channeling effects to balance our mind, and it will get stronger and stronger and have more and more ability to benefit ourselves and, of course, then to benefit others in so many ways. So these are my thoughts on five faculties as doorways to balancing our mind, balancing our practice, and balancing our life. And however that's going to be for each of us in our wonderful, unique way of being. So I wonder if you have any questions at this point or thoughts. We have a bit of time. Yeah, Sierra. Um, so I thought, um, I don't know, I don't really have like a formulated comment, but um, just this morning when I was doing the walking meditation, I feel like for like a split instance there, I did kind of feel that harmony between um, the five different faculties. Mm -hmm. um, there was like, it kind of clicked for a second. <laughs> And then it was gone, of course, because you're like, oh, but, um, and it was interesting because, and you had already kind of touched on it the second time we, we met up. So that's why I haven't really said anything about it, but it was interesting because it was me thinking about, um, like what my inspiration was. And then that kind of encouraged my effort and like energy to come about. And then that's where like, then the mindfulness got more, um, I guess, stronger or, um, yeah, stronger. And, um, and then that's kind of where I had that feeling where it kind of was in harmony for like one step or two steps. So that was really great. And oh, nice. I want to say thank you. It was really wonderful and really great teaching today. So thank you. Oh, very good. That's a nice observation. And, you know, just being aware of that moment helps your mind to then keep it in your heart as a reference point. And um, yeah, it's great to see how they connect together like that.
Other thoughts? Okay. Oh, Jerry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always, I, not all, always, but more so lately. Um, I'm not saying that I, I actually am some, someone who has trouble letting go. The, the, the thing is, how could we have evolved with no acceptance of impermanence? And that one really disrupts me the wrong way because if evolution, you know, and, and selectivity, uh, it's just sort of curious to me that we all struggle so much with that. And the flip side of it, which I didn't make this up, I mean, I, I read it recently and I think about it a lot recently is, thank God for impermanence. I don't mean that literally. Because like, what, what would, can you imagine, I can't imagine a world without it. Uh, at, at which point do we get frozen and stuck? I mean, so, and there is one thing that's permanent and that's impermanence. So that, that remains, at least for now, uh, the one permanent thing. And yet, how come we're so maladjusted, uh, mal maladaptive to that piece of truth, that piece of dharma? I wonder why it is we struggle with that. I mean, mm. well, is society, are those involved? Is it that parents didn't teach us about that? So I'll stop there. Okay. Well, um, your thought about it, the permanence being important um, is definitely true. I, I was once on retreat and I saw this wonderful t-shirt on somebody that said, impermanence makes everything possible, <laughs> which I thought, yeah, that was very wise. Uh, nice, nice shirt. Um, as for our tendency to um, want to, to fix things um, and is in fixed views and fixed, you know, clinging on to things, um, I think this is something of a survival strategy. Uh, my understanding from psychology and from practice um, is that I can kind of try to imagine, project, you know, you, you get born into this world and you've taken on the six sense bases. So you've, you've got sensitive organs and you're impacted with a bunch of stuff that you can't understand um, when you first arrive. And, you know, of course, everybody's helping us to understand and we learn and that's the natural process of growing. But um, in general, you're pretty subjected to pleasant and unpleasant randomly and um, with little ability to control your environment. And there's a lot of people who are bigger than you and things you need to understand and work out. And it's all normal. Um, most people get through it everybody here got through it okay and to the point where we can function and get here. Now I know everyone then thinks of all their neuroses. Yes, we have neuroses too. Um, and we don't need to worry about who's, who's to blame for that. I think it's more that we had sense bases that you know were impacted. And so we have strategies around this. And so one strategy is to try to get everything that's pleasant. This is the greed type. <laughs> and, you know, so you try to, you say, well, I, you know, you got random stuff coming in, let's focus on the part that's pretty good. <laughs> and so there, you know, you, how you develop a view or an idea that this is what you need to be happy. Or there are those who say, 
ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna protect myself from the stuff that's hard. Shut it out. Get rid of the stuff that's bad. Then I'll be okay. That's how I protect myself. Or it can be the zone out philosophy of, you know, well, if I just don't pay any attention and, you know, kind of shut myself down, then I can protect myself. Um, so, and these are, you know, very broad categories of the greed type, the hate type, and the delusion type that are described in the Vasudhimaga. You know, you can, this, you can buy this theory of psychology or not, and there are, of course, much more sophisticated ones, and I don't know that we need to entangle with that, but essentially, you know, the mind has some, um, the mind's doing the best it can. <laughs> and we ended up with patterns that are no longer useful to us as we get older and have more capability. And so we spend some time deprogramming those and unlearning those and getting wiser. I don't know if that's satisfactory or not, but it's one possibility. I, um, I wouldn't I judge it as satisfactory or not satisfactory. It's just that uh, maybe I'm getting closer to trying to write out my ideas about this uh, because, um, and it's funny, this will be very brief. I was going to say, uh, I have one thing from when I was an infant to toddler. It's, it's, I know where it is. It's a little elephant cup. And at the bottom, it says all gone. So, you know, we used to play that game. All gone, all gone. And everyone is happy that it's all gone. Why isn't that teaching more part of culture? You understand, you understand what I'm trying to say? Because there's a joy that it's all gone. It was yeah, there's joy. We drank all the milk. Yeah. That's right. right. But we didn't mourn or have to, you know, get delusional about, uh, about uh, we, you know, uh, holding on and nothing should change. We actually celebrated change in that way. So. Very good. Love that cup. How I dragged it around for 60 plus years. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> all gone. That's great. The best celebration. <laughs> May we all have that. And someday if we have time, which we may not never, I think that Buddhism is, uh, is so impactful because it attacks our narcissism at many levels and part of our narcissism is that we're invulnerable but we're not that's why the five recollections are so important mm. it brings us in touch with the truth which in and one of those truths is it all rises and passes it all arises and passes if that were our conclusion for the day that would be beautiful we could yep well it's it's lovely to see you all is there um anything else would help someone feel complete yeah susan i would like to say um in our friday class because my life changed and i'm bummed about that um and connected with that is i've been <clears throat> having a lot of strong strong doubt um, and so today was exactly what i needed and I had to carve out time to make this happen for myself. Really, really glad. And thank you so much, Kim. Oh, and thank you. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. All the faculties are such a support. All right. Well, then, um, oh, Carlotta, are you leaning forward? No, I just wanted to say thank you too, because the, I have very few, almost none 
opportunity, you know, to connect with Sangha and the teachings and you do such a great job and I appreciate this. I really oh, do. Oh, good. Well, thank, thank you, you for joining us from, from afar. We're all laughing because you're, uh, it's really, really hot here in California today. <laughs> Look at her, right? In Chile, <laughs> it's a Southern hemisphere, it's winter. <laughs> so That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's great though, right? Everything is relative. It's all. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Our perspective is not the only one. <laughs> uh, right. Very good. Well, then why don't we dedicate the merit from our work today and um, just wish that um, all the effort that we put in and the mind that we brought forth and our connection to this little community that's been practicing together today, uh, all of that can go toward the benefit of others that we're going to encounter today or that we're going to email with or that we're going to see tomorrow even, may it spread outward. And if we would influence just a few people, and maybe that would change farther and farther out. We don't even know how far out it can ripple. So wishing well to all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings everywhere find peace and freedom. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a nourishing day. Great, great.